Welcome to the Next Gen Cast. This is a podcast from Next Generation GP, a national leadership programme. Next Gen was set up to energise, engage and empower GPs right at the start of their careers to consider leadership roles by sharing stories of people who've done this before. And that's exactly what we're hoping to do through this podcast. My name's Nish, I'm a GP registrar in Cambridge and co-founder of Next Gen GP. Over the coming episodes, we're going to be interviewing leaders from different parts of the NHS and even some from outside of healthcare. Our aim is to really get behind the titles, to the heart of the stories that we have so much to learn from as we set out on our own leadership journeys. Our fourth guest on the Next Gen cast is a really special one. I was absolutely delighted when Sir Bruce Keogh agreed to come on the podcast. So Bruce is currently chair of Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospital but he's probably better known to you as medical director of the NHS, a role he had for 10 years. He was a tireless champion for the quality and standards of patient care in his role at NHS England, and he really made sure that there was a clinical voice at the heart of policymaking. It's such a privilege to speak to Bruce today because I had the pleasure of working with him for a very short time while I was a clinical fellow at NHS England. And he taught me more than anyone about how to lead with grace, humility and an unwavering set of values. It's a slightly longer episode, but Bruce has so much wisdom to share. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. So Bruce Keogh, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Next Gen cast. Um, And a a personal thank you too, because Next Generation GP started when I was a clinical fellow at NHS England. And under your leadership, I got the support um, and the resources to get it off the ground. So thank you so much for the part that you've played. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you, Nish. I realised then, I don't think I've ever called you Sir Bruce Keogh before. Can I just call you Bruce? Well, actually, I think it's a key point. I don't... I've always just been Bruce. I've never used the title doctor, Mr. Professor, sir. I think that says something about your humility, actually. And I think that's partly why people just relate to you and they kind of forget all the amazing things that you've achieved. You're just Bruce. So let's just start simple. How are you today and how is, how's lockdown life going? Well, I think I'm in pretty good shape. In many ways, I'm, I'm quite enjoying lockdown because there's less travel. I miss going into the hospital. I miss some of the contact with people because as a chairman, you know, you've got to set an example. You've got to do social distancing properly and that means not going in. But I do a lot of Zoom work, as it were. And how about outside of work? outside Outside of work, I think I've caught up on things that I've been meaning to do around the house or the garden for the last 15 years. And there's always been a good reason why I shouldn't have to do it. And those reasons have now run out. So I've done them. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Bruce, there is so much that I want to cover in this conversation. Um, you have a huge wealth of leadership experience, which we will get onto. But I'd like to start by going quite far back to the start of your story, which I've heard you talk about privately before, but never in public. But if you don't mind, I think it would really help people to understand where you've come from and maybe why you lead in the way that you do. So, Bruce, talk to me about growing up in Zimbabwe and then maybe what made you go into medicine? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is that growing up in one of the old colonies was a, was a very privileged position. But as a young boy, around about the age of four, I had a, uh, a nasty injury to my arm, and, uh, which ended up with several operations and 
several years to, to recover from. And it was that that really made me think that I'd quite like to be a doctor. But I had an uncle who was the family GP. And the striking thing about him was he was a very mild-mannered man. He was very good diagnostician. And it was just his presence when I didn't feel well made me feel better. And I thought, what a fantastic position to be in. I was keen for a number of years, really, to be a general practitioner, to be like uh, this uncle of mine. And one day I was listening to a green and white transistor radio underneath a masasa tree in the garden. And there was a program about this thing called the National Health Service in England, where you could get really good treatment and you didn't have to pay for it. You didn't have to worry about who you were. And this struck me as absolutely fascinating. And I went in and I spoke to my mum and asked her about the National Health Service, and she explained some of the values that underpinned it. And I, I said to her, you know, I want to be a doctor. I'd like to work in the National Health Service one day. At the time, it was probably a passing comment. But things moved on. And uh, then the first heart transplant was done in December 1967. And by then, I shifted from wanting to be a GP to thinking about heart surgery. But it was a, it was a difficult time in Zimbabwe at that time. I mean, I was, as a young boy growing up, becoming increasingly aware of the dramatic inequalities, I think largely between black and white in the country. And that didn't rest easily with me, frankly, or, or my parents. One day I was uh, riding back on my bicycle from school. I was 13 years old. It was a seven-mile ride on my bike. And I was going up this long hill, and I got stopped by a group of indigenous Africans who said to me, the end is nigh for, for you guys, referring to the whites. And he said, soon um, there's going to be a lot of trouble. Meantime, um, my, my mother was uh, dying from um, colon cancer, and she took me aside one day and said, you know, I haven't got long left, she said, but it's been agreed in the family that we're not allowed to tell you that I'm dying. She said that that was because nobody wanted to upset me. And she said, could I keep it a secret that I had told her? It was, it was a very difficult secret to keep because I suddenly felt quite alone. And it made me realize that sometimes kindness um, can put up barriers. That had a profound influence on the way I believe in being honest and truthful uh, with patients. Not long after my, my mother died, um, the political situation was beginning to change in the country. And my father said to me, you know, you need to get, you need to get out of here. Um, I still harbored ambitions to be a doctor and work in the NHS, but there was a small snag. Um, I'd failed my A-levels. My father was ill at the time and was staying with, um, staying with some friends, and I, I went around to tell him I'd failed my A-levels, which was a concept that he grasped quite quickly. And it was frankly because I was living a quite an exuberant teenage lifestyle, I think. So he... He said to me again, this was under, underneath a big tree. He said to me, so what are you going to do now? And that was a sort of Damascus moment for me because suddenly I realized this was no one else's problem. It was just my problem. 
and people would help me solve it, but I needed to recognize that I had serious skin in the game. So anyway, I went off to a cram, I, I repeated my A-levels, did okay, um, and worked as a porter at the local big general hospital. And in, in September 73, I arrived in England with a rucksack and 250 pounds in my pocket and a return ticket, which thankfully I, I never used. Thank you so much, Bruce. You're such a great storyteller. And actually, I knew bits of that story, but not a lot of it, especially not the bit about you almost became a GP. If I'd known that, I would have given you a lot more stick about it. I try really hard <laughs> to keep that secret. <laughs> it's your number one failing. Being a GP is a very privileged position. There's absolutely no doubt you, you reach into people's lives and their families in a way that no other branch of the medical profession does. So where were we? You'd arrived in the UK, you had very little to your name and still harboured this ambition from childhood to work for the NHS. What happened next? Um, So I visited a number of medical schools around the country, trying to explain to them that they needed to admit me to medical school, but that was all remarkably unsuccessful. The end result being that um, I managed to get in to do biochemistry and chemistry degree in in Nottingham, which I used to hide time while I continued to apply for um, uh, for medical schools. Now, in the the first summer that I was was in England, because of the political fallout, if you like, between um, Rhodesia and the United Kingdom, my funds were frozen by the bank. And I found myself in a position where I had somewhere to stay, but I had no money. And it was very difficult. I had a VW Beetle that I bought for 25 quid that had a full tank of petrol. I didn't, I started to have trouble getting food and started to lose weight as a consequence. It all came to a head when I drove out to British Steel to try and get a job to earn some money. I had to pass a medical by the doctor. The doctor said to me, you're you're just not fit, you know, you can't work. He got on the phone, he spoke to the manager. They gave me, they told me to go home, come back in a week. They gave me a week's wages to go off and have some food. And it it was absolutely transformational. I'll never, ever forget the kindness of, uh, of that doctor. But despite that kindness, I was still rejected by 19 different medical schools and eventually got into Charing Cross Hospital Medical School um, through clearing, which was, I guess, a, a turning point in my ambitions. I then went on to be a British Heart Foundation Junior Research Fellow and, and ended up doing some consultant posts in uh, cardiac surgery, first as a senior lecturer at the Hammersmith Hospital, then as a NHS consultant in Birmingham, and then finally as a, as a professor at UCL and director of surgery at the Heart Hospital. So that's been my route into uh, the NHS. Wow. I mean, that sheer perseverance um, in the face of such hardship is just incredible. So, Bruce, you had an absolutely distinguished clinical career, as you briefly alluded to at the end of that story. And yet you went on to achieve so much by choosing to take on the role of medical director of the NHS. So can you just tell me, how did, how did that come about? And how, you know, how did you feel taking on that role? What made you say yes? So often 
these decisions that are completely unplanned. They're just they're just a result of the context in which you find yourself having to make a decision. I had an increased administrative workload, and I found that my surgical practice, quite frankly, was less interesting than it had been um, because I was doing less innovative surgery, I think. And I found myself thinking, I've either got to cut back on the administration so that I can do more interesting surgery, or I've got to reduce the surgery so that I can do the administration better than I was than I was doing. And just at that time, they, um, they advertised for a medical director of the National Health Service. And I, I looked at the job description and the uh, essentials that were required. And I found unusually that I could tick every box. So I threw my hat in the ring, went through a, went through a process and um, ended up in the Department of Health. Did you think you'd get it? Well, no, I, as I said to the recruiter, I said, you know, I, I thought the job was sewn up for, for someone else. And I said to them, look, I'm the wild card in all of this. And I think I was. So you took on this enormous role. And I just wondered if you could go back to 2007. And if I gave you five minutes with that, Bruce, that's about to start this job, say in an elevator on his first day. What advice would you want to give him about how to cope with everything that's going to come over the next 10 years? Well, interestingly, when I went in, there was a chief medical officer called Liam Donaldson, who was absolutely fantastic. And Liam took me aside and he said, I'm going to give you two bits of advice. He said, the first is it's going to take you a year to begin to understand what goes on here. And I remember thinking, it can't possibly be that different. But he was right. It was. And it did take me about a year. And the second thing is, he said, don't try to change the civil service. He said, it's been finely honed for hundreds of years. He said, you'll have no impact on it at all. He said, if you try and change it, it'll just grind you down. Those were two fantastic bits of advice. But the other bit of advice that I got was absolutely key was from David Nicholson, who was chief executive of the NHS at the time and was my boss. And I had an enormous number of uh, responsibilities, which were not just related to the NHS. And I used to have regular one-to-ones with him. And he said to me, he said, I know what guys are you, you are like. He said, are you getting bogged down in the detail?" And I said, yeah, I said, there's a lot of stuff to read and a lot of stuff to understand. And I said, you know, you need to understand the detail. He said, you need to step back from the detail and think about the bigger picture. Otherwise, you simply won't be able to process all the information that you're given. And given that my background involved spending a lot of time in, in intensive care units where you had to pay enormous attention to detail, stepping back was at one level quite difficult at a second level was really liberating because it enabled me then to start to think in more strategic terms than perhaps I had been for the first uh, few months when I first started the job. So the advice you'd give yourself is what they said to you as you came into the role. So give yourself a year, uh, don't try and change what you can't change and don't get too bogged down in the detail. I think that's, that's really useful advice actually that could be applied elsewhere. So you had that very sensible advice on board and you took up the role of of medical director of the NHS. And I've 
I want to ask you about something that I've asked everyone who's come on the podcast so far, and yet it's quite hard for me to imagine it applying to you, but that's the imposter syndrome. So feeling kind of out of your depth or out of your comfort zone. Did you ever feel like that in the job? Oh, yeah. Certainly, I think for the first two or three years. Really? Um, yeah. It was, it was worse at the beginning. I went into a very senior civil service role as a director general. And of course, I hadn't been through um, the civil service training or the policy training that others had been through. And so taking Liam Dawson's advice, I, I spent the first year really just listening. Almost every meeting I went into felt like a tutorial on economics, policy, government, politics. And all I could do was interject with, if you like, a kind of clinical compass. But I, I felt hopelessly inadequate at times because I didn't understand some of the other instruments that were really important in making stuff happen in the, in the health service. And of course, one of the benefits is also that I was surrounded by people who are much smarter than myself. So imposter syndrome, yes. Did you ever think, crikey, shouldn't be here? Why did I take this job? No, never. It was the most fascinating job I think I've ever done. I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, it, it was very, very different, but you're mixing with smart people. You're doing something new. You're learning every day. The spectrum of topics that were covered in the course of a day or a week were uh, phenomenal. Um, no, I loved it. So, Bruce, I want to ask you, if you don't mind, a bit about some of the harder parts of the job. It's great there to hear about the things you loved, but I bet there were some things that were difficult. And this might sound a bit naive, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The thing that really stuck out to me as probably being hard, especially at your level, was dealing with politicians. I mean, this was a world that I knew nothing about before I stepped in. And I just used to listen to the conversations around me and think, I don't know how you do this. And how do you know which battles to pick? I mean, I know you worked with definitely more than one Secretary of State for Health. So I want to hear your version of what it what is it like working with these people and maybe any advice for people that have to. So I had worked quite a, quite a bit with Alan Milburn but before I um, moved into the Department of Health. And in the time that I was in the Department of Health, I worked with Alan Johnson, Andy Burnham, Andrew Lansley, and um, for a much longer period with, uh, with Jeremy Hunt. And the truth is that at a personal level, they're all decent people. They all want the same thing overall. In other words, they want the NHS to work. They want it to provide good quality and they want it free at the point of delivery but they all have different ways of getting there. And they're all very driven in their own interests, if you like. So each of them had special interests. Um, Alan Johnson, I think, was, he had, he had just come from education. You know, he had been asked to keep education on an even keel and he was planning to do the same. He said, the last thing the NHS needs is another set of reforms, he said. I just want to keep the ship steady as she goes. Andy Burnham, I think, had a different set of interests. Aradazi had just done his review on the 60th anniversary of the NHS, produced a report called High Quality Care for All, where the focus was on 
reinvigorating the focus on quality in the NHS, reinvigorating clinical leadership in the NHS, and focusing on personalization. There was then an election, and um, uh, Andrew Lansley came in. He had his own views on how the NHS could be restructured, but they were basically there to, to promote clinical leadership, to create a focus on clinical outcomes, and again, to focus on personalization. Um, but of course, the reforms went through quite a rocky period. And when Jeremy Hunt came in as Secretary of State, his role was clearly to try and quieten everything down after the reforms. But he ultimately ended up with a, a very clear focus on patient safety. So it was understanding what people's interests were was important. But getting into, you said, how do you pick what battles to have? First of all, never get into a battle. You want to get into informed discussions. And I found that in dealing with politicians, that if you were reasonable, you used logic and focused on the impact of whatever you were discussing and the pros and cons of political risk, you could have a very sensible conversation. And the sorts of people that end up as, as ministers or secretaries of state um, will change their minds in the face of evidence provided they're not locked into something for, for other reasons. But the other thing that you need to recognize is that they often have trade-offs, political trade-offs to make and have other broader considerations. So in dealing with them, I try to be honest, straight, and reasonable. The other thing that I thought looked quite hard was dealing with criticism. You're in a very public-facing role, and being on the front pages from time to time, as did happen in your career, must have been difficult. Um, and it's interesting that so far, all three people that's come on this podcast before you, so David Haslam, Samantha Jones, and Dido Harding, have all talked about how hard it is to deal with criticism in these roles and they've all said along the lines of you need a really thick skin to be in this game I just wondered how you found it in such a public facing role Nish frankly I don't have a, a, a very thick skin but I was lucky I think for the first six years uh, I I don't really recall any any real criticism but I started to face criticism when I've intervened in children's heart surgery in Leeds over Easter in 2013. And then I think in a, in a far more uh, vicious way, if you like, during the, the junior doctor's strike. And one of the, the ironies in all of this was that when I first started as medical director of the NHS and the Department of Health in 2007, someone said to me, what's, what's your worst case scenario? And I said that would be a doctor's strike, but I didn't really believe it would happen. So when it did, it, it for me was one of the worst things I could possibly have imagined given the, the, the role that I was in. It started because of some of the way that an attempt to improve weekend services at the week had, had been handled. So I'd been keen to improve uh, services at the weekend in the NHS since 2000. 10 or so, and we had been working on it quietly, but I think quite effectively since 2012. 
And we had good professional support from the Royal Colleges, the Academy, the Specialist Associations, and good political support. And the, the premise for the argument was that everybody knew services at the weekend weren't, weren't as good as they were during the week. People knew that the training and support for junior doctors um, at the weekend wasn't as good as it should be, despite the European Working Time Directive having an impact on the amount of time people could spend training, despite the report from John Collins and John Temple, and despite other survey evidence. We also had evidence that the mortality at the weekend was elevated um, and that higher risk people were being admitted at the weekends. We had evidence of um, greater reporting of safety incidents. We had evidence that the efficiency of the service wasn't as good at the weekends um, and that the service tended to wind down on a Friday afternoon, that we had a state that was lying fallow at the weekends. We had diagnostic kit that wasn't being used. You know, it wasn't a good use of taxpayers' money. And with agreement from the BMA and the um, Royal Colleges, we agreed to tackle urgent care first. But then politics took over and, and people took different and polarized views about the way this should be tackled. And there was quite a lot of complexity in the politics around this. And eventually, as a consequence of that, conspiracy theories abounded, Facebook became the oracle of truth. And much of what I saw in terms of criticism about me personally uh, became impossible to fight really. Things I would like to have said would only have, in my view, made matters worse. And sometimes, you know, it's better to take criticism on the chin, to accept that some of it is justified and that some of it isn't. But, you know, it kept me awake a lot at night, some of that criticism, largely because of my inability to, to deal with it, even when some of it wasn't fair, in my view. As in, you mean you couldn't defend yourself in public? Yeah. And one, one of the other things I've learned, you talked about politics and you, you win your arguments in private. You, if you fight your arguments in public, you don't win them. Not in the sort of role that I had. I appreciate your honesty, Bruce. And for me, I think it's just a really important reminder that there's often so much more going on behind the scenes that we don't see. We just see what we what we read in the press, what we see on social media, and actually to stop and think what else could be going on here? What is the truth behind this? When I look at those two incidents, Leeds stopping surgery for a period of time was about the precautionary principle. I took a lot of criticism for that. It was the right thing to do, and I'd do it again. Trying to improve weekend services, I think, was the right thing to do. And raising it, I think, was a kind of inconvenient truth. Um, but it remains one of the areas where the NHS could improve. Um, I think it's improved a lot, though, over the last few years. I, I think I've forced you to talk quite a lot about the hard parts of the role. I think it's important because I think that's where a lot of the learning comes from. And I'm really grateful that you did. But I'd really like you to tell me about some of the amazing things that I know that you achieved in that job. What were the bits that you were proudest of? So 
pride isn't an emotion I, I feel much, but I, I do feel pleased about a number of things. And I divide them into clinical things, structural things that we've done and preparing for the future. If I am proud, I'm proud of the work of the national clinical directors, of the contribution that Roger Boyle made to transforming cardiovascular services in this country, the sterling work that Mike Richards did in improving cancer services, the work that Keith Willett did in transforming our trauma services, to name three of many national clinical directors. But at a personal level, I think I learned quite a lot from the way we tackled venous thromboembolism. Liam Donaldson, who was the chief medical officer at the time, had done quite a lot of work on identifying um, that venous thromboembolism was a problem in our national health service, a preventable problem. And he and I were summoned to an all-party parliamentary group where we were questioned about what we were going to do about it. And it was clear from questions from the president of the Royal College of Surgeons and the Royal College of Physicians that the profession wanted some guidance on this. And I took a while for the penny to drop because I, I thought to myself, why are the leaders of the medical profession asking me to tell them what to do? Then I realized that they weren't asking that. They were asking for me as medical director of the health service to make it easy for them to do what they knew was right. But of course, it requires serious management and structural interventions to make things happen, things that the colleges can't do. But what the colleges and specialist associations were ve are very good at doing is communicating with the medical profession in a trusted way. So we forged an alliance between the colleges and the NHS management board and put a number of incentives in place to ensure that everybody that came into hospitals was assessed for their risk of venous thromboembolism and that the appropriate prophylaxis was administered. As a consequence of that, we saw the, the rate of risk assessment for venous thromboembolism go up from around about 40% to well over 90% in, um, in about a year. And as time has marched on and data has improved, we've started to see that a number of lives has been saved and some financial gains have been made. But it, it taught me a lot about what the management structure of the NHS can do working in concert with the clinical leaders of the NHS and, and what they bring, which is expert knowledge and professional credibility. Wow, I mean, I can't even remember a time when we didn't assess people for VTE. And such a powerful example of um, what can be achieved when clinicians lead change. Sorry, carry on, but it's just yeah. interesting to think of that perspective. Yeah. Um, and it's not that long ago. Mm. So you said that so that was a clinical thing that you were really proud of, and there was also structural things and um, investing in the future. So in structural terms, I think I'm particularly pleased with the, uh, the development of the Academic Health Science Networks. Cathy McLean, who was my deputy at the time, was largely responsible for that. I think they're one of the few structural changes which have withstood the test of time. Um, the concept being that it would bring together providers of healthcare, purchasers, commissioners, industry, and others with an interest in innovation together. I think we also went through a period 
structurally of increasing clinical leadership in the National Health Service. The biggest change was in the recognizing the, the massive leadership potential in general practice, um, which I think materialized or, or rather came out from under bushel with uh, the advent of CCGs. But in NHS England, we introduced a large number of uh, national clinical directors. We uh, increased the number by over double. Um, we also initiated the Faculty for Medical Leadership and Management, which is now led by Peter Lees, as you know. And in preparing for the future, I think one of the things, yeah, I think I do feel proud of this actually, was some of the things that I did together with junior doctors, setting up the Agents for Change with Ashley McKim, who was one of the early uh, clinical fellows. Setting up the National Medical Directors Clinical Fellows Program is, is something that I've, I have been very proud of, actually, because I've just, it's kept me in contact with some of the brightest and most energetic people in, in our profession. And they were always very honest with me about things, very frank, and they helped keep my feet on the ground. But most importantly, they gave me huge confidence in the professionalism and future for the NHS. I love the fact you also credited all of those to other people that were involved, um, but I'm sure you had a massive part to play. So I want to move on to sort of the end of your time at NHS England. So I was there when you were sort of in the last period before you were leaving. And something that I observed was that you were absolutely amazing at making time for people. And I just couldn't get my head around how does this guy who's so busy and has such a big role seem to have time in that it wasn't strange to see you sometimes out of your office and talking to people around you you know you'd make time in your diary for the clinical fellows all the time and not only that but out of the office if there was a team success to celebrate or a birthday you would always pop your head in and I used to just think how does this guy have the time I've always wanted to ask you about that how do you do it do you have a twin <laughs> <laughs> no I just I've always had the privilege of working with really great people I mean I like people and one of the things about the sort of role I had, it, it wasn't my role to actually do the fine detail of the work. It was my role to guide the work. And there were other people who were putting in long hours and working really hard and doing the, the very best they could. My role, I, I always felt, was to provide encouragement and to unlock barriers because there are barriers everywhere. You know, there's this invisible treacle that seems to stop things happening. My role was to, to try and help people with those frustrations. And I got a huge amount of real pleasure from seeing other people develop and flourish. And, and I think that's why I just want to, finding time for people is just so important. You've heard me say this before. I, I'm really touched by a quote from Harry Truman. Well, I've got the exact words wrong, but the gist of it was you can achieve whatever you want, provided you don't care who gets the credit. And giving people the time of day, treating people with respect, in my view, is, is so important. So it's easy to make time for people, particularly at the beginning and the end of the day. I think that really also marks you out as a great leader because presence is really important and being approachable is really important. 
so the last bit about NHS England I want to ask is it sounds like it was a fantastic job that you loved and you were enjoying so much. Why did you go? You drove me up, Nish. <laughs> it uh, worked. <laughs> well, more seriously, actually, there are several considerations. First of all, I had been in a version of that role for 10 years. And frankly, the reality is that in senior roles, most people do considerably less time than that. And I began to wonder whether it was time for new blood. Also, in my head, I decided there was an arithmetical thing that if you introduce a policy that 95% of people agree with, but 5% think is rubbish, that's okay. But the next time you do something, a different 5% don't like it, and a different 5%. In any job, negative perceptions of people in a senior role slowly grow. But the real clincher was that in 2017, by then I'd been married for 38 years, and I'd been living away from home for 13 years. And by living away from home, what I mean was I used to leave home, I don't know, 6 o'clock, ish on a Monday morning and not come home until late on a Friday night or early Saturday morning. And at Christmas, my wife said to me, do you know when you last spent seven consecutive nights at home? And she said, July 2004. That's when I thought, you know, that's a third of our marriage where I've been away from home for the vast majority of the week. And it's not fair. And that was the real clincher for me. But on top of that, by the time I left, I was 63. And I thought, if I were going to stay, I'd need to stay for another four years because of the nature of the NHS and the cycles of change. And if I left at 63, I was young enough to, to take on you know, another significant role. So those were the things that all added up to make me think it was time to move on. Um, that's a really useful perspective, actually, because something I hear people um, often asking about is when do you know when your sort of time is up in a role and it's time to move on? So that's helpful. Um, and I bet Annie was very glad to have you back. So, Bruce, I just want to move on um, to ask you what you think are the traits of a good leader. And I'm asking this because I've heard you talk about it before, um, if I'm being really honest. And so I just want to share your wisdom on this as widely as I can. So in our profession, you know, there are many different types of leadership, all of which require slightly different traits. The first and most important good leader is someone who's a really good clinician because they inspire the next generation of clinicians to want to be good clinicians like them. And too frequently, we underestimate the value of that leadership. Then there are leaders in clinical innovation, academic leaders, managerial leaders, professional leaders who work in specialist associations and colleges, and they all require slightly different skills and appeal to people's different interests, which is good. But the qualities of a leader, clinical leader, are quite similar in my view to the qualities of a good doctor. So... In my view, a successful professional career requires probably two inherent values. The first is compassion, and the second is fairness. And then those need to be coupled, in my view, with four principles. Self-discipline, integrity, respect for others, and 
taking responsibility, particularly for things that don't go well. Thank you, Bree. So I'm just trying to write them down. So discipline, integrity, respect, responsibility. Yeah. There's a, a really important thank you. So the final part is questions that we're asking everyone that comes on the podcast. The first is, can you recommend a book on leadership that's really inspired you? No. Um, oh. <laughs> not really, Nish. You know, leadership comes from within, uh, and I'm not keen to recommend any particular book because although they're interesting, they're often either too personal or they reduce leadership to a sort of artificial formulaic construct, which if you try and copy your own leadership style would become quite artificial. There are plenty of good books on management, of course, which has a scientific component to it in the same way, to be fair, that leadership does. One thing I would say, though, is that I think there are two different types of leaders. There are those who are very positive, who seek change and improvement, and they get a following from a certain group of people. And there's another set of negative leaders who seek to maintain the status quo and resist change, and they get uh, a following also from a different type of person. My only advice is make sure you're in the former category, not the latter, because the first is quite difficult, the second is easier, more common, but probably less productive. I love that. So good. Um, I probably don't realise quite how profound that is right now. I need a bit of time to digest it, but I can already imagine that choice coming to my mind when I'm at a fork in a, in a leadership decision about what kind of leader do I want to be? So the second question is, can you tell us about a leader that you particularly have admired in your career and why? Magdi Yacoub, who made a massive contribution to children's heart surgery and cardiopulmonary transplantation. Roger Boyle, who I've alluded to, who was National Clinical Director for Cardiovascular Disease. Um, John Parker, who was particularly influential. And someone called Bob Replogel, who was a professor of thoracic surgery in, um, in Chicago. And one thing that they all had in common is that they all saw a better world. They gave credit to others and they were listeners. And I think listening and being prepared to change is a real vital attribute of leadership. But I mentioned John Parker, who was a cardiac surgeon at St. George's. I was his senior registrar, and I was due to become a senior lecturer at the Hammersmith Hospital. And I said to one day, I said, Mr. Parker, I said, what's different about being a consultant? Because I see the patients in the clinic. I um, see them on the ward. I operate on them. I do the intensive care ward rounds. He said, the difference between being a senior registrar and being a consultant he said, is taking responsibility for other people's mistakes. And that was really profound because the further and further you go up the leadership ladder, the more you have to carry the burden of that responsibility. So, Bruce, the final question. I mean, the whole time you've given some amazing advice and I need to go back and listen to what you said and write it all down. But if you could leave people with three short bits of advice, um, new GP leaders at the start of their career, particularly, who might be listening to this, what would you say? Well, the first thing is I've probably got two bits. 
please don't underestimate your value to the NHS. General practitioners of today are the consultant general physicians of only a few years ago. You have a very, very important role, not only in society, but in a medical profession, in my view. The second thing is general practice has changed as a result of COVID. So the ground now is more fertile than it's ever been for innovation. Just grab it and run. Run with your, your gut feeling and your sentiment. That really resonates, actually. It's what we've been trying to do with NextGen, to kind of take advantage of the fertile soil of innovation despite not being able to do face-to-face events. I'm also sensing a little bit of regret there, maybe, Bruce, and uh, not becoming a GP yourself. It's there somewhere, isn't it? (laughs) Bruce, I've absolutely loved speaking to you and I feel like I could have carried on talking, but I'm so aware of your time and maybe your wife won't thank me as well for having taken up your entire evening. Or maybe she will. I don't know. (laughs) But um, thank you so much. And I'm going to end by saying something that is really cheesy, but I'll say it anyway. Maybe I'll edit it out later. (laughs) But um, you're you're a template of what a good leader is for me. Absolutely. And not just me, actually, a lot of people, because you have this combination of grace and humility that is rare, especially at your level. And that's had a huge impact on me and on so many other people. So thank you so much just for being the way that you are. Oh, Nish, that's really kind of you. Thank you, Nish. So that was our fourth episode with Sir Bruce Keogh. I always come away from conversations with Bruce just feeling that little bit wiser and also with the reminder of the importance of humility, no matter how senior you become as a leader. I hope you felt some of that too. It'd be really great to hear what you thought of it, and maybe any suggestions for who else we should be speaking to. You can email us at nextgenerationgp at gmail.com or tweet us at nextgp. And if you want to keep in the loop about future events and leadership resources, you can join over 2,000 people who have subscribed to our monthly bulletin by going to bit.ly forward slash nggpbulletin. Hope you can join us for the next episode. 